brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a Midi clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Something's not right. I'm Olivia. And I'm Tashauna. And we have a season finale happening here. But it's a two-part season finale. Two parts. So I guess this sort of isn't the finale. Next week will be the finale. A quick note before we get started. If you enjoy our show and would like to help us offset research and production costs, please consider becoming a Something's Not Right Patreon subscriber. Among the many perks available to donors at all levels are bonus episodes and stickers. We also have a PayPal account if you'd rather make a one-time donation. For links to both of these, please visit notrightpodcast.net and click the Support Us tab. Tonight we are bringing you the first part of our two-part season finale. You asked for it, and I have relented. We're telling you the story of Marsha Trimble. For a long time, I said I wouldn't do it because it's been extensively covered, but at some point it finally dawned on me that this case is really well known here in Nashville. Yeah. But we have listeners all over the world, and chances are they don't know it. As far as I know, this is not nationally known. You know, there have been datelines or... 48 hours or whatever on on Janet March, but mm-hmm. I have not seen any sort of national coverage of this one. And uh, so we want to tell this story. And really, furthermore, a lot of people here in town may not know the whole story, whether they are newcomers, which we certainly have a lot of, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't know the story at all, or... They're young. Yeah, and people who lived through it it took so this case from beginning to end lasted so long that um people might have missed parts of the story there might still be people who think someone did it who didn't do it and right so we want to get that out there shall we get into it uh i think so so the murder that changed x y or z is sort of a true crime cliche it's a shallow trope of course because there were always murders before and after the crime in question and 
what usually changed was a community, usually a middle or upper class one Mm -hmm. that previously felt immune from violent crime suddenly felt threatened. Those elements are present in the disappearance and murder of Marsha Trimble in Nashville in February 1975. Nine-year-old Marsha vanished from her upper-middle-class street in Nashville's Green Hills neighborhood. Nashvillians of a certain vintage, particularly those who lived near Marsha's home, still talk about the suddenness of the change in their parents' attitudes. Once permitted to roam and bike and be kids freely until the streetlights came on, after Marsha disappeared February 28th, those children were now required to come straight home after school and never go anywhere unsupervised. Marsha's murder wasn't the only murder in Nashville in 1975, which was in fact one of the most violent years on record for the city up to that point which is something we may need to look into for future episodes. Sure. Metro Nashville police detectives, in fact, had dozens of unsolved killings on their desk when she disappeared. Detectives also had a string of unsolved rapes, which would, much later on at least, prove important, even if the connection was overlooked at the time. File that away. That Marsha's murder is the one that changed Nashville is generally accepted now. More than 40 years later, though, as with any such assertion, it's certainly susceptible to argument, but it's a fact that it forever changed a neighborhood in ways that echo down to today. And I grew up, actually, in that neighborhood, kind of down the street from where this happened, and I went to the same elementary school where where Marsha went to school, and so I, you know, I heard about it growing up, I think. um, I heard about it. I remember my mom talking about it. She, you know, didn't live in that area at the time. Because 75, I think, that's when my mom graduated high school. But I certainly remember her talking about it. Yeah, yeah, it was a huge story. And we've mentioned it a lot of times before on the show, and especially in our coverage of Kathy Jones. Because there was, there's a lot of talk among people, especially on message boards, about how Kathy's case didn't get the kind of coverage that that Marsha's case did. And some people say, oh, it's because she was from Green Hills. It's, you know, it's a nice neighborhood. And Kathy was from a more working class neighborhood. That could have played some role in it. But Kathy was also found pretty quickly within, I think, maybe 36 hours or so. So there's there's a big difference here. According to Tom Wood, a veteran Nashville journalist and author who grew up in the area and was an invaluable resource for this episode, those that lived in and around her little horseshoe of a neighborhood are to this day highly suspicious and distrusting of the media. The neighborhood was ravaged by drug and alcohol abuse, mental illness, and suicide in the years after Marsha's murder. And one man lived for three decades under a cloud of suspicion and accusation that lasted until science solved the crime. Marcia Virginia Trimble was born in Nashville, March 28, 1965. In February 1975, a month before her 10th birthday, she was living on Copeland Drive in Green Hills, west of downtown Nashville, with her mother and father, Virginia and Charles, and her 12-year-old brother, Chuck. 
Copeland makes a horseshoe intersecting with Dorcas Drive on both ends, creating a sort of island which contained 13 houses, many of which were in 1975 still occupied by their original owners from the time construction began there in the 50s. Julia Green Elementary, and that's again where I went to school, but Julia Green, that's where Marcia was in fourth grade, and it's just a few blocks away. Affluent and almost exclusively white, there were a handful of Asian American families. There was nothing superficially notable about this neighborhood. I mean, it's just kind of what you would expect, this sort of upper middle class white neighborhood. On Tuesday, February 25th, 1975, Marcia was doing what hundreds of thousands of nine-year-old girls have done in scores of Februaries before and since she was delivering Girl Scout cookies. Between 4 and 5 p.m., she stopped by the Womack home and spoke to 15-year-old Jeffrey. Jeffrey told her he didn't have the $5 for the cookies and said he'd get it to her after his mother returned from across the street where she was having her hair done. Mrs. Womack said that she saw Marcia stop at the end of her family's driveway, apparently checking her delivery list. Others placed her with another girl. Some witnesses say they saw her with 10-year-old friend March Edgerton. Shortly thereafter, Marcia returned home and gave cookies to her grandmother, who paid her with a $5 bill. Marcia told her mother and grandmother she was going back out to deliver more cookies, and her mother urged her to be quick as sunset was approaching and dinner would soon be ready. It was the last time Virginia Trimble saw her daughter alive. Nearby, Marie Maxwell had arrived home with her infant daughter. Maxwell could never tell the police the exact time, but she said it was before sunset, which was at 5.37 p.m. In untold numbers of interviews, Maxwell said she saw Marcia talking to, quote, three figures. Marcia did not return home, and Charles and Chuck set to the neighborhood to search for her. At 7 p.m., Charles called the Metro Nashville Police Department Sergeant Sherman Nickens, a family friend. Nickens, a detective, called for officers from the Youth Guidance and Homicide Divisions and headed to Copeland Drive. Within two hours, more than 200 public safety personnel from MNPD, the Tennessee Highway Patrol, Civil Defense, and Rescue Squads were on the scene. Neighbors, including Jeffrey Womack, joined the search, combing the area with flashlights. During the search, it occurred to Womack that he should tell someone he'd seen Marcia that afternoon. He found a uniformed officer who Womack alleges rebuffed his effort to offer information. Later, while searching a nearby quarry, Womack overheard on a police radio that officers wanted to talk to him. Assuming that his earlier information had made its way up the food chain, Womack hustled back to the Trimble house. And he was 15, 16? He was 15. Okay. Womack, who readily says he was a bit of a wild child in his teenage years, though who wasn't, was wearing a pair of shoes upon which he wrote the word fuck. Scandalous. I like that. Yeah. Scandalous. I'm going to go home and do it tonight. Hey, you know what? Do it because you can. Some old tennis shoes. This, for some reason, rose police suspicion once Womack arrived back at the Trimbles. 
where he was taken into Charles and Virginia's bedroom for questioning. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Jeffrey told police he planned to fill the condom with water and drop it from a roof, as a character had done in the 1971 film Summer of 42. Womack had, in fact, seen the movie. He saw it with his neighbor, 32-year-old divorcee Peggy Morgan, who ran a daycare out of her home. I can see you looking at me from the other corner of my eye. <laughs> yeah. Womack worked there as one of his numerous casual labor jobs. The Summer of 42 is a film about a teenage boy who has an affair with an older woman while her husband is at war. Tashana is gesturing. <laughs> Womack's possession of the condom was, in fact, inspired by the movie, though not in the way he said. He was having a sexual relationship with Peggy Morgan, a.k.a. that's rape. This is a 32-year-old woman and a 15-year-old child. Yes. But the condom, nevertheless, arose police suspicion that Womack was involved in March's disappearance. Is there going to be follow-up to that? Like, how they found out that they were having a sexual relationship? I think he told the cops. And did they do anything? I doubt it. I'm sure they probably thought, oh, cool, it's a boy, you know. Gross. Mm -hmm. Very gross. so gross. In the meantime, Jeffrey's mother and Peggy Morgan learned that Jeffrey was being questioned and rushed to the Trimble home. If I was his mother, I would punch Peggy Morgan personally. Um, yes. Mrs. Womack's motives in intervening in the interview were almost certainly maternal, but it's easy to assume Peggy Morgan's weren't wholly altruistic. After all, Jeffrey might well spill the beans about his sexual relationship with his much older neighbor. Again, rape. Nevertheless, what Peggy Morgan did and said in the Trimble bedroom that evening changed the case forever. When she and Jeffrey's mother came into the bedroom, they insisted the interrogation cease until Jeffrey's lawyer was present. Just who was his attorney, the detectives asked. And Morgan blurted out the first name she could think of. The man who'd handled her divorce, John Hollins. Jeffrey Womack, in the book The Suspect, written with Hollins and the aforementioned Tom Wood, said Detective Tommy Jacobs exclaimed, shit, on hearing the name. <laughs> Hollins was, in fact, an accomplished divorce attorney, but more importantly, he had a reputation as one of Nashville's best defense lawyers. Morgan's quick thinking proved fortuitous. Hollins, who actually hadn't been hired at that point, took on Womack's case. The pair met the next day where Hollins gave Womack a polygraph test and concluded, in part because a 15-year-old wasn't calculating enough to engineer such a crime, which had precious little evidence, that he didn't do it. In the ensuing three decades, Hollins brought on Ed Yarbrough, who would later become U.S. attorney for Middle Tennessee, and David Rabin, a defense attorney so renowned that he literally helped write much of Tennessee's criminal code. 
Womack ended up with an all-star team of lawyers. By 10 p.m., the Little Horseshoe was inundated with news media, including a young Oprah Winfrey, then working for a Nashville TV station, in addition to the hundreds of police and searchers. Curious onlookers and would-be helpful civilians were also on the scene. Police released a sketch of the bushy-haired man, leading to dozens of tips. Within short order, the bushy-haired man was found and ruled out. Thank God. In the following days, the search widened. Someone said they saw Marcia at a truck stop west of Nashville, but it proved to be false. A pair of girls' socks were found in a lake, which Ugh. was dredged and yielded nothing. It is weird, though. How did those get it's there? It's so creepy. Maybe they were fishing. Something's not right. With them socks. Mm-hmm. So that's when we need some of those not right socks. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Tom Wood himself, 11 at the time, joined his Boy Scout troop on a search of Barry Field near what is now Nashville International Airport, some 12 miles away. Trained search dogs were brought in from Pennsylvania, as was the psychic, but still nothing. It seems strange to me that they would take the Boy Scouts out there, I mean, to look ostensibly for a child's body. I feel like, though, I've heard of that before. Yeah. I mean, Scouts are good, and and they would want to help. Yeah, but, but like... Like, why would you send your children out to basically look for a body? I don't know. Was it Stand By Me? I guess. Sanctioned. Yeah, that that does seem a little... mm, Yeah. As March wore on, many people became suspicious of Virginia Trimble, and for a reason that seems bizarre in hindsight. Virginia made regular appearances on local TV and in the newspapers, but she came off as cheery or calm. Oh, no. People don't like that, and they will judge your emotions. When Virginia Trimble would go on TV and smile, she wasn't smiling in a cynical way, Sergeant Nickens told Wood, but the news media made a field day of that. Virginia made much of her religious devotion and faith in the weeks following Marsha's disappearance, and this is what will strike people as strange. It was off-putting to many Nashvillians. While the city was and is the so-called buckle of the Bible Belt, home to Sunday school boards, publishing houses, the Southern Baptist Convention, hundreds of churches, and several religiously affiliated colleges, the dominant form of Protestantism in Nashville in 1975 was what is known as mainline or liturgical rather than evangelical. Mm. So it's a big difference. While the city was overwhelmingly Christian and people were, as they are now, likely to ask a stranger or a new acquaintance where they attend church, most people were more comfortable with the established denominations, Methodists, Episcopalians, Presbyterians. Mm -hmm. To illustrate how different the religious landscape was, consider that in 1973, the Southern Baptist Convention's news service ran an editorial that read, Religious liberty, human equality, and justice are advanced by the Supreme Court abortion decision in Roe v. Wade. I see a look of shock on your face. Yeah. Things have changed. You would think that things would be... More conservative. Yeah. I I mean, I grew up going to a Baptist church. Trust me. They weren't like that. And you? God. The phrase born again, emphasizing a personal redemptive salvation experience, did not truly enter the American zeitgeist until 1976, so just a year later, 
when Jimmy Carter's presidential campaign mm. brought the evangelical movement into the spotlight. The symbiotic relationship between evangelicals and movement conservatives did not take hold until Ronald Reagan's presidency four years later. So for Virginia Trimble to be so effusive about her faith was unusual, even suspicious, in a way that would seem nonsensical today. It would be the opposite today. Yep. That was really surprising to learn. I just assumed it would be the opposite. Yeah. Hmm. Virginia put her faith on display again as March wound down. March 24th, the Monday before Easter, she told the Nashville Banner, it's a miracle time of year and that she felt her daughter would be home by Easter. Okay. We're going to stop here and let y'all digest everything you've heard and we'll be bringing you the rest of the story next week. You don't have to wait two weeks or like 8,000 weeks since it hasn't been 8,000 weeks. It seems like it's been a long time. Life happens. But please stick around when we're done to hear a promo from Pretend Radio. It's an amazing show, and I'm really loving the current season in particular. Speaking of, you know, like evangelicals and stuff, this, this season of it is focusing on the Word of Faith Fellowship Church, which is a cult. And oh yeah i need to give it a listen you were yeah. telling me about it because i do have a um it sounds weird if i say i love cults it's not that i love <laughs> a them. fascination i'm fascinated by them yeah definitely definitely check it out i love it and i like javier's accent oh so it's fun yeah thank you as always to justin from mysterious circumstances timmy red Audrey Arndt, Jessica Ashley, Rachel Irvine, Allison Klima, Kathy Lind, Janet Logan, and Vanessa Kors. Yeah. And a special thank you to Anne and Kenny for your help. You have helped us out a bunch, and we really appreciate it. Uh, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. I'm Javier with Pretend Radio, and this season, I'm embedding myself in a cult. Throw him to the ground and get his devils out! Families will turn on each other. Let me make it really clear. I am Jamie's mother, but what he says is lies. Babies will be ripped away from their parents. It, it's hurtful to see them and know that their lives could have been much different in a, in a home outside of there. We're not letting go of God's will with each other. And the powerful, well, they'll be held accountable. Um, as a district attorney, it's probably better for me not to comment. <laughs> why is that? Why is that? Survivors are not holding back, and the church is not backing down. Many in the media have tried to get in front of the accused cult leader, Jane Whaley, and have failed. We have asked you to leave. But somehow, I got in. How are you, sir? Yeah, yeah um, I'm here to speak with Jane Whaley. She invited me to service today. Yeah. This season, we're going deeper into the Word of Faith Fellowship than ever before. This story is on a collision course. And it's not going to end well. Why would anybody want to harm him? Sometimes we hurt other people by hurting people they love. Pretend Radio, Season 3, The Prophet. What's the matter with us? We're 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.